0: ocean bites out loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world we hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way everyone, it's Ashley, your host. And I just wanted to let you know, it's a new year, it's a new me. And I'm going to start offering a little bit more commentary throughout the episodes. So you might hear me giving a little bit more context, a little bit more information. And this is just to enhance your listening experience. All of our guests are amazing scientists and amazing science communicators. And I just want to make sure that their work is getting the recognition it deserves and clarify a couple of points that uh, might get overlooked while we're talking, but are still super important to understanding the rest of the episode. So I'm going to start doing that with this episode and our amazing guest, Caitlin, who does super awesome work with sharks and rays in the Maldives. So great to have you here today. So for our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your pronouns?
1: Yes. Hello. My name is Caitlin, um, and my pronouns are she, her.
0: Wonderful. Well, as I said, we are so excited to have you on the show today. And can you please tell us what you're currently researching?
1: Yes. Right now, I am researching um, sharks and rays in the Maldives. Um, My study site is this kind of remote island in the south of the country. uh, And it's pretty mysterious. It gets um, some crazy visits by species that are kind of rare to see in other places. So um, I'm looking at the diversity and visitation patterns of uh, these different species. That is
0: way too cool. (laughs) So for our listeners who don't know, can you tell us where the Maldives are a little bit more about them and why they're so special for marine
1: biodiversity for sure um the maldives is located south of uh, sri lanka south of india um in the indian ocean while specifically this uh island that is my study site acts as potentially um, a seamount and offers kind of habitat protection um, or other resources in an otherwise pretty nutrient-poor environment that is the open ocean.
0: So just as a reminder for our listeners, seamounts are essentially sea mountains and islands can act as seamounts because they provide a lot of biologically active habitat. This biologically active habitat allows marine megafauna, like sharks and rays, to gather food, interact with each other, and even reproduce. If you're curious about what seamounts might look like in the deep sea, check out our episode with Maronke Harris, who studies deep sea seamounts.
1: We're still trying to figure out why exactly so many different species are relying on this tiny slice of land. Um, But also just the tropics in in general uh, is a really biodiverse region. Um, You've got the open ocean, which provides um, one kind of ecosystem. But then you also have coral reefs, which um, have a great deal of habitat complexity and can support a lot of different species.
0: Most people who know about the Maldives, they're like, oh, it's a great honeymoon spot, but don't really realize that it has this amazing biodiversity that's available because of these seamounts. So what I'm wondering is, do you have a fun fact about either the Maldives or the species that you research?
1: Yeah, the Maldives is a pretty special place for some very charismatic (laughs) megafauna. Um, I first went to the Maldives working with uh, the Manta Trust that I'm still currently partnered with. Um, and they're an NGO that studies um, reef manta rays and also oceanic manta rays that um, you can find in the Maldives. And the Maldives is actually home to the largest known aggregation of of mantas and the, the largest known population. Um, and at the moment, I think we're over 5,000 different individuals.
0: No way. 5,000? That is lot. so many. <laughs> So during your research, have you gotten to interact with these species at all, actually being in the water?
1: Yeah, that was uh, basically the whole job. Um, We were doing a lot of different population dynamics research. So figuring out um, how many pups are born um, or how many are sighted in a year. Um, pregnancy rates Um, we a study actually recently came out using some of the data we collected uh, using an underwater ultrasound Um, so that was like my favorite thing to do in the field because you get so close um, to manta rays um, to try and give them a little scan and see what's going on every day out on a boat looking for mantas getting photo ID and trying to figure out more about them
0: that's like The absolute dream. (laughs) I am just a little bit jealous because it sounds like absolute paradise being out there under the sun interacting with these charismatic megafauna. Was there a specific interaction that you had with a manta ray or a shark or one of these beautiful creatures that stuck with you?
1: Mm -hmm. I have um, a few favorite manta rays. I feel like I don't know if I'm just like projecting this onto them, <laughs> but I feel like <laughs> they have personalities um, and some of them can be pretty cheeky. Um, one memory in particular that has stuck with me for a few years was uh, the first kind of season that I saw oceanic mantas. They're the larger, more of like pelagic species um, and they can reach seven meters from wingtip to wingtip and they, they act quite different. Um, to the reef mantas, I think. They're pretty inquisitive generally. So when uh, one day in particular, we had a few oceanics that we were trying to uh, microbiome swab on their backs to look at the communities living on their skin. Um, we were doing like laser measuring um, to figure out how wide they are and and doing photo ID. So there's a lot of stuff going on.
0: Manta rays have their own microbiome living on their skin. I know, totally blows my mind. But actually, humans also have their own microbiome living in their gut. So while ours is on the inside, manta rays have theirs on the outside. One of the ways that researchers try to learn more about manta rays is by taking swabs of this microbiome living on their skin to identify what kind of microbes are living there and how that might affect their general health. And when Caitlin was talking about lasers, using lasers mounted on an apparatus is really, really helpful when measuring things underwater. And this is especially important for something that might be moving underwater, like a manta ray. You can aim the lasers so that they track whatever you're measuring underwater, and they're not going to be distorted by distance.
1: We're trying to like collect everything on these like three individuals that are kind of all over the place. Um, and then to get ourselves organized, we went back to the boat um, just to see like who got what. And one of the mantas followed us back to the boat and circled our, our little fishing boat for over half an hour. It was so curious and, and you just like feel the curiosity <laughs> when you're in the water with them. Um, they're, it's like they're wondering about you the same way you're wondering about them. Um, and I had enough time to jump back onto the boat, I gave our boat captain my fins and masks so that he could experience it too. Um, so it's a really beautiful memory that we got to share with other people who had never swam with mantas before.
0: So what an amazing experience. I can only imagine what that must have been like for you, encountering this beautiful creature. So happy you got to experience that. <laughs> So I want to hear a little bit more about your methods. Like, how is it possible to collect all this data? Can you maybe walk us through a day in the life Mm -hmm. while you were in the
1: Maldives? Yeah, that's a good question. I was based at the Four Seasons in the Maldives, um, working for the Manta Trust as the assistant project manager. This basically started this whole... Project and like the Manta Trust was kind of born out of this place um, where uh, Guy Stevens a marine biologist uh, now is the CEO of the Manta Trust um, Kind of realized that there was this huge population of manta rays that we didn't know much about Um, So it was a great opportunity to start collecting data Uh, and now the team is uh, normally quite small there's like maybe three sometimes if we're lucky four um kind of long-term staff members Uh, and then we have seasonal volunteers come and that seasonal (coughs) volunteer position is how i got started um and and got to try my hand at all these different data collection methods and fell in love with it and ended up staying for much longer um but yeah, we're, we're basically um, data collection workhorses for a large number of projects that um, want to know more about manta rays. And this is a great place to do that because they're protected from um, fisheries here. There's, there's no um, catch allowed. We do a lot of a lot of different stuff. It's an intense season. Um, the the mantas kind of migrate seasonally um, from one side of the Maldives to the other. So when they migrate to our side in the southwest monsoon season, it's go time, and we're on on the boat for eight, sometimes nine hours or more a day, um, spending hours in the water trying to get everything done. Um, and a lot of it's opportunistic, so. When the matches are there, we're (laughs) pedal to the metal.
0: When researchers talk about opportunistic data collection, it just means that they're not attracting their target species in any particular way. A lot of researchers will often bait their traps or use some type of attractant to lure their target species to an area so that they can better study them. But with opportunistic sightings, researchers are searching in the area without using any type of bait. Using opportunistic sightings really helps when you're trying to better understand the behavior of the animal because you're not going to be altering it by feeding them or causing interactions with humans that they're not initiating on their own.
1: So the first kind of most basic data collection thing we do is photo ID. Um, Every manta ray has a unique spot pattern on their belly. So that's a great way of kind of tracking the population movements. um, If... Kind of individuals are loyal to one atoll, or maybe they're moving between different atolls in the Maldives. Um, Then we're—that's kind of like for our main database, Um, and then that data can be used by other researchers, by master students, or um, people who that kind of information is useful for. Um, Then we have more kind of specific projects. Um, Neve Froman is. Currently working on his PhD at Cambridge, um, and he's researching uh, kind of the the reproductive development of manta rays. So, so for him, we were doing um, SVP measuring. Um, so that has like it's like a metal bar with two GoPro cameras on each end, and they're angled really precisely so that um, when you take a video in both at the same time, um, you can calculate how Long a manta is, so that's really useful for um, kind of growth patterns um, and trying to figure out which kind of the size size at maturity, which is really important for conservation um, for other countries that do catch manta rays, um, and then we are also doing al- underwater ultrasounds, um, which is my favorite um, scanning. The backs of mantas to try and figure out um, if I guess figure out if when we first see that a manta ray is pregnant um, is that accurate or maybe we can detect earlier signs, um, figure out maturity internally, uh, and see if that matches the length that we think it might. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a few a few of them. Um, there's lots more. Um, so we're, we're busy out there.
0: Wow. I'm just trying to wrap my head around all of this (laughs) and I had no idea that there was so much data to be collected from manta rays and hopefully, like you said, this data can go out and provide really good basis for future studies. So now I'm curious, how did you get into this? can you take us on a journey mm-hmm. from young Caitlin to current <laughs> <Grand> Caitlin? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Young Caitlin was based in the middle of Canada, um, not anywhere near an ocean. <laughs> um, so I think the ocean always kind of scared me a little bit. And I, I'm like an adrenaline junkie. So so I was like, really drawn to it. I started saying that I wanted to be a marine biologist at a young age. But could never really say why because I kind of didn't really know anything about the ocean. I actually started um, a biology degree in Saskatchewan where I grew up, I did half of the degree and was like, oh, this is going to be a mistake if I finish this (laughs) year. I transferred to the East Coast, um, but before I transferred, I was like, okay, I'm going to do marine science, but I want to be able to say why. So I went to Honduras in uh, Central America. And I did my dive master, um, which actually was really a great move um, because it opened up a lot of different kind of field work opportunities for me. For my honors project um, at Dalhousie, I went to Mexico um, and I actually was um, studying green sea turtles and the impact of tourism on turtles. And I met somebody there who had previously worked for Manta Trust and they were like, do you know what a manta ray is? And I was like, no. And they're like, do you know where the Maldives is? And I was like, no. And she was like, you should go. And I was like, yeah. And I applied and got accepted to the internship program. And the rest is history.
0: What a story. <laughs> <laughs> Just like a journey all the way from the middle of Saskatchewan, which is the prairies, landlocked Now you're here studying these beautiful (laughs) (laughs) manturais. And I'm curious about your dive master certification, Mm -hmm. because as you said, it's a really great way to get both experience and opportunities available in the future. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about that? And would you recommend that people who are interested in marine biology pursue that?
1: Mm -hmm. I went into my dive master just with the intention of wanting to know what the ocean is about and with the intention of like lighting a fire in me to be like, okay, I need to move across the country and be a marine biologist. Um, And it did that for sure. But I didn't anticipate that it would give me the experience in water to be comfortable in a lot of different situations. Um, And I've actually never been that interested in being a professional guide. But I think just spending that much time in the water and... Um, understanding currents and learning a little bit more about the biology firsthand um, made a huge difference in the in the rest of kind of my academic career um, and and professional career a lot of jobs if you do want to get into something that's field work heavy uh, need you to have that experience and often for insurance purposes um, you need to have that kind of, Professional qualification, so I'm really, really glad that I did it. Um, and I still love diving, and I'm grateful that I, I can, I'm at a level where I'm super comfortable in the water and and can help other people too.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really great avenue for future opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. So thanks for, for sharing. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So now I want to ask you a little bit more personally. What motivates you to do science? I mean, obviously you have a passion for the ocean and for these beautiful manta rays
1: and other ocean biodiversity. I think the fact that there's so much we don't know (laughs) is so shocking to me and like blows my mind. I'm so interested in like trying to figure out like even just basic information, like at what size does do manta rays reproduce or how long do they live for? Like, those are such basic questions that we still don't really have solid answers for. So um, it's it's so motivating to know that there's, there's so much we have left to do um, and seeing like, I think also a part of the Manta Trust job was working with Four Seasons and, and showing other people What it's like to be with manta rays Uh, and that was such a special part of the job for me and and it's so inspiring to show someone the ocean or a manta ray for the first time and and see how that's so like life-changing um and it really yeah makes you reminds you that it's so important to figure out how we can protect it all for the future
0: i mean that just goes to show how amazing you are. <laughs> oh. I mean, even like being able to show other people how amazing the ocean is, that's what we need. Yeah. Like, if you don't know how great the ocean is and why we need to protect mm-hmm. it, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. But by showing other people and being passionate about it, which you are, mm-hmm. it's really making a big difference. Oh, uh,
1: yeah. Thanks, Ash. Um, I, one of my favorite quotes is mm-hmm. We protect what we love and we love what we know. And mm-hmm that's that's why I got into marine science after doing my dive master. I fell in love with the ocean, and I know that that's how it works for other people. So getting more people in the sea and and showing them what it's all about, I think makes makes a wave of change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with you. And I am going to put that quote on a mug. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked about what a normal day it looks like for you when you're doing field work. But what does a normal day look like for you at UVic when you're in the lab?
1: Mm-hmm. So all of my field work is done now. Sad. But um, I I really wanted to do my master's because I felt like I had so much to learn in terms of like the analysis step um, and paper writing. And I really wanted to get better at that, kind of took care of the fieldwork side of stuff in my time in the Maldives and and Working on this, I knew was going to be harder for me, but I wanted the challenge. Um, so now I've got the challenge and <laughs> it's a big one. Normal days, I think it's probably sa- similar for you and I where <laughs> opening a laptop, working on R script, coding a lot, a lot of data. Um, my project uses time lapse cameras and I have over a million photos analyzed with the help of some amazing research assistants. Uh, So it's a lot of numbers to crunch and patterns to explore. Last week I was working on, or the last two weeks, working on an (laughs) R-coding document. (laughs) It's pretty brain-melting sometimes. But um, I also really like writing, so I'm excited to mix in a little bit more of that moving forward. Um, And hopefully in the end, tell a cool story about sharks and um, mantas in the Maldives.
0: Well, I mean, I think your story's already very cool, <laughs> so <laughs> I think you'll just manage to make it even cooler. Oh, thanks, Ash. <laughs> and, of course, our, as we all know, the coding software that we use and love <laughs> all the time.
1: <laughs> it's a love-hate.
0: It's a love-hate relationship, but it does mm-hmm. allow us to pick out these really incredible trends with uh, not that much computing power. Mm-hmm. So. As much as uh, it's a difficulty, sometimes it's something that does have yeah. to be done.
1: Look, <laughs> we're not sponsored by R, but we're not. <laughs> we should be. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you use any AI in your
1: yeah? Work? Such a good question. Yeah. Um, I've connected with some people developing AI. <clears throat> it's it's kind of a whole other project yeah. to develop <laughs> AI, um, and and it needs to kind of be specific to the way your cameras encounter species and like the questions you want it to answer. Um, so there, there is AI out there that I've run through and it's just going to take some playing with to get it right. Um, and be able to pick out the things we want it to, um, at the moment, it's not there yet. So we've done everything manually, but in the future that would be so amazing. And I think, The stuff I'm doing now, if we could expand that to like a long-term monitoring project, I think that would be (laughs) so impactful. Um, This site has been declared a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve, um, and this is kind of the first step creating this like species list and trying to figure out who's around and when, Um, but understanding how that changes over time and changes with seasonal fluctuations Mm -hmm. um, is going to be a big one, so AI would be crucial for that to go um, long term for sure.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I can't imagine doing all of the analysis manually. (laughs) Mm. It sounds like a ton of work. And
1: hopefully in the future, AI will be able to help you out. Big shout out to all the research assistants that have helped me (laughs) process all this data. (laughs) Couldn't do it without you.
0: Yeah, it's always great to have some research assistants who are willing to help out with that kind of stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not stuff we can necessarily
1: tackle all mm-hmm. alone. No, for sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, let's... So now I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you what kind of obstacles you faced while you were either doing your fieldwork or while you were in the lab.
1: Mm-hmm. Something that's kind of come up in different parts of the world at different times, kind of throughout. Um, The time where I started my dive master till now, um, I think there are some challenges with um, just doing field work and being a woman in science. It's sometimes still kind of male dominated. And I think people in this field are so passion driven. It's easy to to kind of put your career first um, or put the project first. Uh, ahead of your safety. So learning kind of that delicate balance of pushing yourself, but also protecting yourself is so important. And I think every woman in science learns how to do it eventually. But um, I I think it takes some trial and error. Yeah, as you said, it's extremely important to put your
0: safety first. And I think a lot of the times, you know, when we have a specific goal in mind, we're doing research and we want to do the best research possible, we sometimes don't consider the safety aspect or the safety Mm -hmm. aspect Mm -hmm. comes second when really
1: it needs to be equal or greater Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. For (laughs) sure. Also, I think like all of us are such passionate people. This is like a very passion driven career field. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that can overrun other other kind of things that should also be a priority so um i think it's great to be working with a a really strong team and i'm so so grateful for um the team that i have been working with where we can kind of look out for each other and help each other draw the line um and make sure that yeah safety Mm -hmm. safety's first um and you can't answer big crazy scientific questions if if you're not in a good place. So that's important.
0: Yeah, very, very true. And, you know, making sure, like you said, you have a good team, Mm -hmm. where everyone understands that, and especially is aware of specific challenges. As much as we don't like to admit it, sometimes we still have to realize that, yes, there are situations where we are vulnerable. And we do need to take those measures of safety, whether that's saying, okay, I'm not comfortable with this, and stopping Mm -hmm. whatever work you're doing. Mm -hmm. And Exiting the situation, or whether that's just standing up for yourself in certain Mm -hmm. situations and being Mm -hmm. like, hey, this isn't okay the way that you're treating me. I think, you know, regardless of where you're doing work, these situations do come
1: up. Yeah, for sure. And you can be a scientist with boundaries. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah,
0: setting boundaries (laughs) is a great life skill and a great skill in science. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. So I guess what I'm wondering is do you have any recommendations for? People who are thinking of doing fieldwork, what safety recommendations
1: might you give to them? Mm -hmm. I think um, really regardless of of where you come from or where you're going to do research, I think it's just important to not do it alone. Mm -hmm. I think planning ahead to set boundaries for yourself, um, that's something that I do now, um, which is really helpful. So you just have those checks and balances within you. I think, I think that makes a big difference. Yeah,
0: definitely agree. And I mean, I think, you know, things like safety training before you go out, mm-hmm. different aspects, different scenarios that you might encounter while you're in the field are really good to go over beforehand, regardless of where you're going in mm-hmm. the field. <laughs> yeah. And especially, like you said, not being alone is a really big thing. It's because, you know, things happen when you're alone, whether you're, you know, regardless of who you are, if you're mm-hmm. by yourself, mm-hmm. things
1: and, might happen. Yeah. And sometimes we just need help correcting judgment. Um, and I don't know, field work's really tiring. And you're, sometimes your brain's not working at 110%. <laughs> um, so I think it's good just to have people that are kind of looking out for you and you're looking out for them, um, things go a lot lot more smoothly I think. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you for your advice and for the field scientists out there, yeah.
1: You're not alone. You're not
0: alone. (laughs) (laughs) So now I want to know, if you could give yourself some advice, young Caitlin, in the past, Mm -hmm. what would you tell her about going into research?
1: I would say get ready get ready for a wild ride i don't think i have honestly i wouldn't change anything i think i would tell her be patient with yourself and it's gonna be awesome but maybe not every day um and that's okay it's still it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's just wonderful to know like you are where you are because of the decisions that you've made and you know, they've led you here, which is a good place. <laughs> mm-hmm, for sure. What is something that you feel excited about for the future?
1: I'm really excited because this, this project has been, we've done a couple like pilot things over the years um, and working really closely with um, dive centers and community members in Formula. So um, this, this past spring was the first time in a while that I wasn't able to go back to the study site because I just need to get things moving on the data analysis (laughs) front. Um, But I'm really excited to have a story to tell about the data um, and go back to the community and and share that um, and get other people excited about it too. I think that's going to be really, really special. And that's going to keep me motivated through the the hard our times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is a great thing to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sure everyone will be really happy to have you back and Mm -hmm. talk about it. (laughs) I'm excited. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? Anything, any other organizations that you want to highlight?
1: Big thanks to the community of Formula for um, letting me be there and and work towards answering some of these questions and um, especially... Two of the dive centers that have helped me so much formula dive school and pelagic divers formula um, they've been so crucial to um, helping me on my way so very grateful for all the support and yeah excited to see what's to come
0: well thank you so much for being here today it was great talking with you learning about charismatic megafauna <laughs> and just an amazing all-around experience.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.